thank you so much for joining us. Ascol. Well, thank, thank you. Um, you are right now in Kharkiv, is that right? That's correct, yes. I got here this morning. So tell uh, before we get started, can you tell us briefly what you can say on the podcast and what you cannot say? Um, I, I, I can think I can say everything that I've seen and and um, um, heard to, um, today. And um, if if you're um, if you want to talk about um, resistance in case of occupation, I'll just have to be very circumspect about that. Yeah. So in very general terms, if there is, um, if there is, uh, if we want to bring it up, um, can I ask you, you were in Kiev for a few days um, and uh, can you say that you were there and that you talked to resistance people or not? Yes, I, I think so. Yes. All right. Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my AI colleague, Giselle Danoy, and Julia Joja, a senior fellow at Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today calling in from Kharkiv, is Askol Krushalnitsky, a journalist currently reporting from the Donetsk region for The Times, which is to say for the real Times of London and also for the Sunday Times. Um, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Um, we are recording this on uh, Monday, the 21st of February. The situation Uh, from from my vantage point, at least, seems very febrile, uh, very fluid. And I would like to simply turn to Julia for her initial thoughts uh, for how she would like to frame our, our conversation with, 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 with Askol to, to get as much insight into what really is happening in, in Donetsk right now. You know, Dalibor, I don't think I'm any wiser than you. I think we're all in a, uh, for the last few days, if not weeks, we've been looking at this with a lot of confusing sentiments, in, including what is happening in terms of data, announcements, intelligence leaks, etc. I'm hoping Ascot will help us make sense of that. But the one thing that I want to point out here, and that's one thing that I'm looking at now for days and weeks, is um, something that I think is socially potentially huge with implications for generations to come. And particularly, I'm looking at Ukrainian women. You know, so far, women played a marginal role on the front lines on the Eastern Front for hundreds of years. But in Ukraine today, women, young and old, with PhDs from Stanford or bartenders, are on the front lines. Um, their stories and their pictures are everywhere in the Western media, on TikTok, you just have to look for them. Um, they're standing actually on the front lines, armed and trained, ready to fight and die, sometimes for freedom. They are leaving their families behind, dropping their jobs to fight the Russians. Um, the latest numbers are that we know in the media are 32,000 women, but more are enrolling every day. 
Um, and let me tell you why this will have, I think, consequences for generations. My grandmother, who did not fight, told me what the Soviets did to her and to her country through warfare and through occupation. When these Ukrainian incredibly brave women return from the front lines, they will tell their children and their grandchildren what the Russians did to them and to their country. The Poles, if, if these are the most visible ones um, uh, on the Eastern Front, base their views of Moscow and what Moscow did to their country decades and hundreds um, uh, of years um, before, base it on historical experiences with Moscow. Take those feelings of Russia and multiply them by, by 10. That's the Ukrainian men and women, their children and grandchildren for the next century. Tens of thousands of women on the front lines fighting for freedom. And it doesn't even matter if we have a mass invasion or not. Russia is already fighting in Ukraine and it has been doing so for years. It's just gotten worse right now. Ukrainians will live and hopefully tell the tale of Russian warfare and occupation. So, dear listeners, welcome to the Eastern Front. Let us give you a view from Ukraine through the eyes of Askold. Askold is now in Ukraine. He's a war correspondent. Askold was in Crimea when the first little green men arrived. He was in Donbass when the war broke out. Askold, can you even tell us where you are right now? Um, well, I'm in a, um, a hotel, a rather nice one, small, in, um, uh, on the outskirts of Kharkiv. And you've been in Ukraine now for a while, for a few days. Uh, you've been to Kiev, you've traveled to Kharkiv. Can you describe to us um, your journey so far over the last few days, what you've seen, who you've met with, what you believe is happening? Um, I actually um, flew into Prague um, about 10 days ago, and then uh, for um, different reasons. I, I was expecting to pick up a car and drive into Ukraine. Didn't happen. So I took a bus um, into uh, from Prague to Lviv in western Ukraine uh, because I was um, afraid that um, the Russians might um, start an attack and I might be stuck at the border. So I spent a couple of days in Lviv and then um, I went to cave and stayed there f um, a few days, and then I uh, finally um, arrived in Kharkiv this morning. What can I say about the um, the journey? The, the 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 thing that I've seen in all uh, the places that I visited in Ukraine is um, a, a calm. There, there's obviously anxiety. Um, it's a very tense situation but people are not panicking and um they make a point of saying that panic is um the um, enemy's friend and and uh, so there isn't panic sometimes to the point of they're so seemingly untroubled that one wonders whether it's delusional but um <laughs> There's a, um, a, a, a kind of irony um, that the Russians in the occupied Donbass areas, Luhansk and Donetsk, have contrived to 
put the fear of God up their own people to terrify them with fictional non-existent Ukrainian attacks and staging explosions, just as was predicted by US and, and, and uh, British um, intelligence. And they, those people who are not facing any kind of threat from um, Ukrainian forces, many of them are genuinely terrified, whilst Ukrainians who are facing a very real menace from the Russians are quite, um, if not relaxed, uh, very stoic about it. If I may ask you, uh, you brought up the question of uh, the intelligence revelations that uh, have been sort of a, a drumbeat, especially coming out of the Biden administration. How do how do the people you've spoken to respond to that? Do they think it's a help, a hindrance, effective? Uh, what do you reckon? Um, it, there isn't one um, unified um, opinion about it. Um, in general, I've got to say that people appreciate um, the help uh, that the U.S., U.K., and other Western countries have have given, and um, um, people. Um, realize that um, some of these revelations may have prevented um, um, very bad things that the Russians were preparing to inflict um, on them. Over the last um, couple of days, we've heard from uh, the uh, White House, the Biden administration, that um, they've seen plans for what the Russians might do if they occupied Ukraine. And it's um, terrible stuff reminiscent of Stalinism or, or Hitlerism, of um, mass arrests, putting people into uh, what amounts to concentration camps and executing um, others. And um, I was speaking to people about that today in Kharkiv, and they just say, well, we know that's what they'll do, because we've seen it in the occupied territories over the last eight years. People um, who were pro-Ukraine, pro-Kyiv, anti the Russian occupation, um, were either flung in jail and still remain in jail, or some of them turned up dead, and others have simply disappeared. Um, so um, people um, just say that um, this is what we expect the Russians to um, to do, and um, I think that um, they they feel that it's it's good that the world knows about these things. Today we um, witnessed uh, a somewhat farcical, heavily staged meeting in the Kremlin, in which. Putin was talking to his closest advisors and ministers about the prospect of recognizing Luhansk and Donetsk people's republics. And uh, I suspect that that would involve recognizing them not only on the territory which is currently occupied by, 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 by pro-Russian forces, the, the self-styled rebels, but, but over the entire administrative regions of, of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are much larger and which are largely still governed by, 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 by Ukraine, which would in turn, I presume, require an invasion or, or minor incursion, depending on, 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 on how, you, how, you, how, you, how you see that. So is, 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 is that basic, I wonder if that basic sense 
of what might be coming you know is that is that correct and if so what do people on the ground say about that like kharkiv is a city of 1.4 million people who mostly lived there for the past eight years who are leading these very sort of stoic lives in the face of what is seemingly an imminent imminent danger i i, I, I wonder if, if 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 especially this televised meeting and and sort of and it's Somewhat, somewhat farcical nature. How 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 it resonated on 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 the streets, if 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 it has at all. Well, um, the idea of um, um, somehow proclaiming um, uh, part or all of Luhansk and Donetsk regions uh, independent um, um, surfaced last week in the Russian Duma. And it has puzzled people, talked to people um, um, about it. And you're right that um, um, it hasn't been made clear whether this is the two portions of those two regions currently occupied by Russia or whether um, they would somehow expect Ukraine to cede the unoccupied parts, which is... Um, unlikely, um, or whether they would then um, proceed to I- invade and and f- and, and um, take over those um, parts of the um, terror of those regions that are yet unoccupied. But there's also a question that um, Ukrainians and others um, ask um, that this um, proclamation of independence or somehow making these um, places independent and then perhaps uh, annexing them to Russia uh, then undermines uh, the raison d'etre for um, the um, aims that Moscow has in the Minsk um, um, talks or Minsk um, ceasefire agreements that eventually um, their aim was to have recognition by the Kiev government for these two entities um, as autonomous um, parts of a Ukrainian federation. And, and of course, Moscow would control those two um, new entities and would uh, proceed to veto um, any foreign policy or uh, defense policy measures that um, Ukraine the Ukrainian central government wanted to um, um, to, 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 to begin to install, um, and they would they would use it as a mechanism to prevent Ukraine's getting further closer um, to the West. So they they can only use a veto if those places are not in Ukraine. So that's another puzzling aspect of all this, and. Um, um, of course, the Russian Duma probably wouldn't have floated the idea um, on its own. Um, it, it would have been suggested uh, by Putin's people. So again, um, uh, it, it's um, mysterious. It seems contradictory and puzzling. We are in the West as puzzled, if not more so than anyone else. Uh, I was called. 
as an experienced work correspondent, I, I'm sure you're familiar with how the mainstream press loves to speculate about what Putin's military courses of actions might be. You know, you can't open a newspaper or a website these days without seeing a map that has hundreds of red arrows uh, uh, pointed either at uh, Kyiv or other parts of Ukraine. But I'm wondering, as you talk to people, what kind of a war do they expect? Um, I mean, looking at this and uh, particularly uh, sort of uh, considering the sangfoi that you described, uh, uh, again, yeah. try to give us a sense of what how Ukrainians are looking at this. Well, again, as um, uh, probably as many Ukrainian uh, theories um, about how Putin will proceed militarily, as you've seen in um, um, in the Western press and. Um, uh, personally, I've been at gatherings of journalists at dinner and with bottles of wine where there's always somebody who's emerged and said, I know what's going to happen in um, in these kind of situations. And never um, um, has any, any, any of this speculation ever proven correct. So I think that all the... Um, uh, uh, the, the Ukrainians that I've spoken to who are, who are thoughtful um, um, tend to do what, uh, tend to think um, as the assessments in the Western press that I respect um, and I think have been the best, that they end, all end with the caveat that um, only Putin knows and um, perhaps he doesn't know um, himself. I was wondering, you've been there in 2014, and of course we know it's very different from now, from then, but I'm wondering if you can, if you can sort of highlight that in terms of your experience and looking at Ukrainians too, their readiness, their willingness to fight the element of surprise back then, and how now they're calm and prepared, how, if you were to to try to make a summary of your impressions now vis-a-vis -vis what was happening then in 2014, what would that be? Um, the summary would be that um, Putin's um, actions over the last eight years have helped to unify rather than splinter um, Ukraine. And when I was here in 2014 and 15, um, the, the, the resistance was... Um, that stopped a further or a broader invasion was by volunteer battalions who came from the east and they were overwhelmingly um, Russian-speaking uh, and thereby um, sort of we, we could dismiss the um, propaganda that Russian-speaking Ukrainians are somehow sympathetic. But the difference is that, um, as you know, the Ukrainian... Um, military um, is much more efficient, much more um, powerful. Um, many people who were on sitting on the fence um, in in Ukraine um, had to make a decision. They were forced by events um, to decide: uh, Do um, I want to be um, part of a Putin kleptocratic 
murderous um, uh, setup, or um, despite my misgivings um, about the Ukrainian government and all its flaws, do I prefer to be in in um, uh, in a Ukraine that has uh, a democracy and I'm allowed to um, demonstrate without being um, sh- shot dead or, or jailed? And and I think that most people chose um, to stay in, in Ukraine, uh, which is um, something that probably um, Putin and his propaganda machine didn't understand. What I've seen now is also uh, a determination, which I, um, I, I've been speaking to today to lots of people, um, some of whom haven't had any military experience, but they're acquiring it. They're, they're um, training um, programs uh, being made available where they get basic um, um, skills in, in firing weapons. And there's also a lot of people being trained in um, first aid battlefield um, first aid and um, it's only 25 miles away from here the Russian border so um, this is um, definitely one of the uh, Kharkiv is one of the places that um, has been often mentioned as one of the um, first targets for a Russian invasion and people have been saying you know we've got nowhere else to um, to go. This is our country. Why should we um, flee? And I've, I've um, spoken to men, women, um, of all ages who say, I'm, I'm going to fight. We're all going to fight because we have no choice. So there's a, a great determination. Just a quick follow-up on, 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 on this. Um, from your conversations with Ukrainian soldiers, volunteers, officers, um, is there anything that you believe uh, Ukrainian defense forces need right now? Um, is there, you know, what are the bottlenecks? What are what is holding them back? Is there anything that the West could do to help in a sort of constructive way within the sort of time frame under which we are we are currently operating to to make you know to boost their readiness and and their ability to resist uh, the Kremlin if need be. Well, um, yesterday before I left Kiev, um, I was speaking with um, a Ukrainian army colonel um, who um, has spent a lot of time liaising and talking about uh, this very subject, training and um, uh, supplies of weapons and other equipment by the West. And um, he regretted that um, uh, Britain and America um, have withdrawn the people, their military that was in Ukraine training Ukrainians to use some of the um, weapons such as the Javelin anti-armor missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. And um, they um, regret that those people have been pulled back, which is probably predictable that they would because um, if an American or um, uh, British soldier or other Western soldier is killed by uh, a Russian bomb, then um, that causes a whole um, new set of uh, um, situations. But um, I think that 
the um, West could circumvent this by um, continuing to take people to train, perhaps in in Poland um, and Romania has been um, very um, pro proactive, and these are two um, countries that border um, Ukraine and the um, Latvia, Lithuania, State, Estonia have of course also been very um, helpful and donated weapons, but they don't have a contiguous land border. So um, um, a continuing training, a continuing link w with um, Western forces in, of that sort, I think would be appreciated because not only is it doing um, an educative job, training these people uh, to be better at operating these weapons that have been supplied. Um, but it was a big morale uh, booster for Ukrainian soldiers to have um, people in American, British, Canadian uniforms in their country. Well, Askol, this is a, a very good moment to wrap up. I hope the Biden administration is listening. I know that they're um, that they're preparing in the neighboring countries refugee camps. Uh, maybe this is um, this is a sign when we have to reconsider our policies in the West in terms of the aid and the support that we can offer with with very little resources and not even on Ukrainian territory. Askot, thank you so much um, for, for joining us um, today from Kharkiv. Um, again, this is February 21st. I don't have any concluding remarks other than We'll keep on looking, we'll keep on watching and listen in to us. Um, we have two new episodes coming up in the next few days of um, Ukrainians that are joining us um, from Ukraine to talk about their perspectives um, in these very unstable times. Dalibor, over to you. Thank you, Julia. Just as you were talking, I saw an alert on my phone um, notifying me that Putin will recognize the two breakaway people's republics um that's from washington post um so on that uh lugubrious note i think we'll, we'll draw this to a to 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 to, to, to close uh today from dalbar rohaj and uh from me giselle donnelly if i could get in also just our best wishes uh ask old for you be safe um and godspeed um and we hope to talk to you again soon. I'm Giselle Donnelly. And Yulia Zoza. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest, Astkol Krushalnitsky. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word, and if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.